So this morning we have the opportunity to hear from a, uh, a guest speaker who's uh, a, a new recent friend of mine, but I've, I've known of uh, Bill Farley for several years because of uh, his book, Gospel-Powered Parenting, which is a book that has been very Im- impactful to Vanessa and my life as we've sought to raise our kids in a, in a godly way. And um, one of the questions that I've got from several of you that are, that are regular jokers is, is this Chris Farley's dad? And that is... So, funny story. So, Vanessa and I have this, this game where, for whatever reason, both of us have the weirdest dreams between that time that you hit snooze and that time you wake up. So this morning, alarm goes off, Vanessa hits snooze, she wakes back up and she's like, you're never going to believe the weird dream I had in my snooze hour. She's like, my dream was that Chris Farley stopped being a comedian and became a pastor. She's like, and he was an expert on a certain kind of advice, and he joined the Nine Marks Network. And you were on a conference call with Chris Farley, asking him a question about pastoring, and you told a joke in the middle of it, and he thought you weren't funny. (laughs) And she woke up. (laughs) Our brother Bill Farley. All right. That's great. That's the best introduction I've ever had. Thanks. Um, you know, when people, I'm filling out some form and I'll say, what's your name? Bill Farley. How do you spell it? You know, Chris Farley. Oh, yeah. And they, and they fill it out. So, okay. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer one more time. Just briefly, I want to ask God's mercy on our, our time together. Father, we, we approach you this morning. We need to hear from you. And uh, this is a divine work. I can, cannot do it, Lord. I confess that. <clears throat> Your people need to hear from you directly. So I, we pray together that that would happen. Father, we approach your throne of grace through our faith and confidence in your son's shed blood, not our works, not our virtues, not our righteousness. And we ask for this. Father, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we meditate on parenting this morning. Amen. Okay, I'm going to, my title of my talk was, um, by the way, this is the last thing I ever like to talk about is parenting. (laughs) Because I talk about it all the time. (laughs) Whenever I get speaking invitations, I always say, well, uh, anything but parenting. But uh, your pastor, Matthew, wanted parenting. I thought, okay, I'm going to give a talk on parenting I've never given before. So we're going to talk about parenting from the Ten Commandments this morning, specifically the Fifth Commandment and the Second Commandment. Now, I'm going to give you some sobering words this morning, and it's going to be countercultural. You're going to hear countercultural advice. It's going to be biblical advice. It cuts right across the grain of Portland culture, Spokane culture, Western culture in general, okay? So I want to prepare you for that. And it may not be that new to you, but it, it may be new. So, um, as we approach the New Testament and we're looking for parenting advice, there's only two texts in the New Testament that give us parenting advice. One of them is in Ephesians chapter 6, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's it. Colossians chapter 3 has a text that says the exact same thing. It's a little shorter. That's it. 
So what is the New Testament presuming? That we're getting our parenting advice from the Old Testament. There was no New Testament when Paul wrote that. All there was was Old Testament parenting advice. So we're going to go to the Old Testament and extract some parenting advice this morning. And it's, again, it's not going to be Dr. Spock. No, doctor, what's the guy's name from the 60s? Judy, we were talking about him. At any rate, it's not going to be contemporary parenting advice. But hopefully it'll be good biblical advice. So we have three times this parenting advice is given to us in Scripture. And three in the Bible is the number of exclamation. The first is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. So we have a commandment, and it's coupled with a promise of reward. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we get the same thing repeated with a little bit of information added. Honor your father and your mother, and this is added, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and this is added, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then we have it repeated again in Ephesians chapter 6, three times exactly in the Bible. Whenever something's repeated in the Bible three times, you need to pay, you need to, your head needs to go up and you need to say, this is important. So for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom appears exactly three times in the Bible. Three times the Bible tells us that we're worms. Did you know that? It does. Exactly three times, not more than three, not less. Jesus took three of the 12 disciples and drew them to himself uniquely in a special relationship. And three times he, he took them aside with him privately. Uh, I can't, I'm getting off my notes now. I've got to be careful. But their threes are all through scripture and they're important. The fifth commandment is the first commandment of the second table. So when the law was communicated to Moses, he had two tables. On the first table were four commandments that related to our worship of God. On the second table were six commandments that related to how we are to love one another. This is the first commandment on the second table. And that's very important because this commandment, uh, submission to parents is the foundation of the social order. Submission to parents is the foundation of the social order. The fifth commandment is the first commandment with a promise attached. Why is that? Because this commandment is very important to our society at large. Children are taught to submit to authority by their relationship with their parents. And without submission to authority, culture will unravel. So this is how, how, how God intends for it to be communicated. It's also very important to parents because if we don't teach our children to, to submit to us, we have chaos in our homes. And lastly, it's important to our children because if they don't learn to submit to authority, they're never going to be productive citizens. They're never going to be able to follow Christ or obey God's commandments. They're not going to be able to obey the civil laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this morning, as we approach the fifth commandment, and then we'll go to the second commandment after that, but while dealing with the fifth commandment, we're going to answer two questions. What does it mean to honor? And secondly, why is honoring our parents so important? So first of all, what does it mean to honor? What it means to honor, the Hebrew word for honor is the word kabod. It it's generally means heavy. In the 60s and 70s, we used to have an expression, man, that's really heavy, which means that's really cool. And that's really important. We don't use that anymore, I don't think. But those of you that are older, remember that. The Hebrew word for glory or honor is the word heavy. It's to, it means this person is to be imbued with heaviness, of honor and importance. 
So increasing the weight of their honor and importance. And when it says honor your father and your mother, the word honor is the word kabod. It's also the word that's used to describe the glory of God. It's translated glory or to glorify. Now, I want you to note that the text does not say obey your parents. It says to honor your parents because honoring can be exercised throughout life at an age-appropriate level. So when you're a child, that means obey. When you're an adult, that means you're honoring. You don't necessarily obey your parents, but you find ways to honor your parents. So let's look at the limitations to honor. We're still answering this question, what, what does it mean to honor? We've said it means to, to uh, respect, to uh, lift that person up, to make that person important, to, 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 uh, to clothe that person in a sense with glory, okay? But there's limitations to this idea in Scripture. Uh, and the first one is we are to fear God as parents, not our children. So as we're teaching our children to honor us, we, our first duty is Godward, not childward. God is always to be every parent's first love. And you will not be effective at teaching your children to honor you unless you love God more than your parents. If you need your children's affection, you're dead in the water as a parent. If you need your children's affection, you're dead in the water as a parent. And your kids will sense that and they will, you, will, you will forfeit their respect and ultimately their love. Mothers, fathers. This is, a, this is the world we live in, isn't it? It's like being a pastor. If you need your church's esteem and love and respect, you're dead in the water. You're, you need God's respect, God's love. Anybody in a leadership position needs to start with this presupposition. I know this is tough. We want our kids to love us. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just that we have to want God to love us more. When we, we're faced with a conflict between having our kids like us or having God like us, we better be uh, on a page where we're willing to say, okay, I don't care if my kids like me or not. If God is for me, then everything's okay. We are to fear God, not our parents, if we're children. God is always to be every child's first love. So this goes both ways. We're talking about limitations on honoring. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, chapter 10. And by the way, if any of you are interested in the note, I'm going to quote a lot of scripture. If any of you are interested in the notes in this sermon, I will email them to your pastor. And he can, it's in a word document. He can send it to anybody that is interested. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There's the limitation on honoring our parents. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's the limitation on on, uh, parents loving their kids. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So God needs to mediate between all of our relationships with our parents and with our children. And that's where we start here. Jesus modeled this. Now, if you... I'm going to do an interesting study in the New Testament. Do a study of how Jesus related to his mother. Uh, for the like of me, cannot figure out how the Catholics get what they get about Mary from the Bible. Because if you look up all the texts in Scripture, and I was raised Roman Catholic, and look at how Jesus related to his mother, I have a feeling she was a controller. Because he's always distancing himself from her. And listen to this, Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came... And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them. And listen to this. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. Now, do you think Mary was happy with that? No. Why did Jesus say that? He was saying to his mother, I love God more than you. I'm supposed to love God more than you. And if I don't love God more than you, then when I die and rise from the dead and my righteousness is imputed to all those who believe in me, they'll all go to hell because I was a sinner. It was crucial. It's crucial that I communicate that God is always more important to me than my parents. Okay? No, he loved her and he honored her. When he was dying, he said to his apostle John, basically, take care of my mother. He, was taking, he, he loved her, but he loved God more. What does it mean to dishonor? So we just looked at limitations on honoring. It means striking, cursing, disobeying, or failure to care for our parents in old age. Striking, cursing, disobeying, especially when we're young and still in the household, or failure to care for them in their old age. Now, the Bible takes a child's insolence towards its parents exceedingly seriously. And I don't think we take it as a culture seriously at all. We are a rebellious people. We have no place for authority in our lives. We are, as a culture, a uniquely... We are allergic to authority as a culture in a way... Uh, that throughout history and throughout, throughout history, which is unique to history, especially in North America, it's helpful for us to know about that about ourselves. If we compare ourselves to other cultures at other times and places, we are unique in this regard. We're, we're hyper-individualistic and we're hyper-selfish and we hate authority. But the Bible loves authority and the Bible loves submission to authority and the Bible hates rebellion against authority. Now listen to Exodus 21 verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. A capital crime. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. A capital crime. Deuteronomy 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him And bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. What's going on in that text? How would you like to be the parent? that had to do that with your child. Is God standing between you and your relationship with your child? You bet he is. You love God a lot more than your child to to be willing to take that child and do that, don't you? And how about the window this gives us on the seriousness of a child's failure to honor its parents because uh, it's a serious issue. Jesus, again, Matthew chapter 15 this time, for God commanded... He's going to uphold this whole thing. I want you to notice that Jesus does not say this is a bad idea. 
For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother shall be put to death. He changes, he kind of broadens the verbal category here from just cursing to reviling. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me, I age, in other words, in your old age, is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, Jesus is telling telling us there another thing that honoring means, which is taking care of our parents in old age. Uh, So uh, what the Jews were doing was they were saying, well, if I give it to the treasury at the church, the money I would have used to care for my parents, I don't have to care for my parents. Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. You're breaking your... your, uh, Tearing asunder the word of God with your traditions. Okay, so what it means to dishonor, striking, cursing, not obeying parents, reviling parents, failing to care for our parents in, the, in their old age. Now, we just, so we talked about what it means to honor. We put some limitations on it. We talked about how serious it is. Let's talk about why uh, this is, uh, why we need to honor because there are serious consequences. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments are repeated twice in the Old Testament. In Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. So we're going to read the Deuteronomy 5 edition. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God commanded you that your days may be long. God will reward those that do this. And that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Reward. And when Paul quotes this passage in the New Testament, he makes, puts an emphasis on this. Honor your father and your mother. Then he says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul, Paul says, by the way, notice that this is the only one of the 10 commandments that God puts a reward on in, of the 10. And Deuteronomy 27 adds to our, the seriousness of this where, where it's, we're told, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother and all the people shall say, Amen. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 17 says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Now, I don't know how you can read that text and not get pretty excited because that's graphic. I met a guy last week that does graphic novels, which are comic books, but they're, but they're serious novels. I, and I didn't even know there was such a thing as a graphic novel. He sells hundreds of thousands of copies and makes a lot of money, and he's a believer. Okay. Anyway, this is graphic. It's graphic, and it's designed to be graphic. God's trying to get our attention with, with these words. So why do we need to honor our parents? Because there are consequences. Now, positive, the positive consequences are God wants to bless your children. God is love. God is good. He's also justice and righteousness and holiness. But God wants to bless your children. And in this text, the reward is long life and a life that goes well with them in the land. Now, that's a, that's a generalized promise. It's like a proverb. You know, the proverbs are, are, don't always come absolutely true. They're general principles for Christian living or for spiritual living. And in this case, with the Ten Commandments, we have the same thing. It's not an absolute promise. But the idea is, 
if you teach your children to honor you, God's going to pour out his rich blessings on your children. So if you don't teach them to honor you, you're going to bring them under God's cursing. I don't think too often we as parents are conscious of this. We're not thinking, how does God view my child's temper tantrum? God hates temper tantrums. What's a temper tantrum saying? It's saying, I'm not getting what I deserve. That's right, you're not. You deserve crucifixion, child. And that child needs to be taught that. You're getting much better than you deserve because you have parents that love you. And you get food every day. And you have not been crucified yet. Jesus took what we deserve on the cross. And when you let your child throw a temper tantrum, you are saying, I don't believe any of this. And, and uh, in addition, I don't think God cares about this. Everything about a temper tantrum denies the gospel, doesn't it? When a child is throwing a temper tantrum, or when you as an adult are throwing a temper tantrum, like I do sometimes, we are confessing that we really don't believe what we say we believe. And God doesn't like that. So when you let your child do something like that, you're inviting God to judge your child. And if you don't bring the discipline on your child, God will at some point in life. Do you see how serious this is? And so uh, I'm giving you a biblical view of authority. So positively, God doesn't want that. God loves you. He loves your child. He wants to richly bless you and your children. Negatively, the consequences are God curses undisciplined, untrained children. In the Old Testament, death by stoning for striking, cursing, or disobeying a parent. I plucked out by the ravens of the valley. That's not a literal thing. That's just saying it's going to be bad. That's a graphic verbal illustration that's telling us This is not going to go well with my child. So what's the application? Let's go through several practical applications for ourselves. First of all, honor your parents. Do you honor your parents? Now, I want to tell you right now, both my parents are dead, and I wish they were still alive so I I could redo my honoring to them because I didn't always honor them. And um, so I'm a sinner, just like you are. But are you working at honoring your parents? When you honor your parents, you are honoring God who put them in your life. It's easy to see our parents as a glass half empty because they didn't do this and they didn't do that and they didn't do this. Rather than see them as a glass half full and think about all the rich, all the way God blessed you in ways you didn't even remotely deserve to be blessed. Do you honor your parents? God doesn't care if you like them. It doesn't make a difference if you like your parents or not. What God is asking you to do is to honor your parents. Do they feel respected by you? On the other hand, do you stand up to your parents when appropriate? There are times when you have to stand up to your parents and do it in a way that's honoring to them. For example, uh, your parents may say, I don't want you spanking your kids. I think it's terrible to spank your kids. Well, if you believe in the Bible, you're going to discipline small children. So you have to very respectfully say to your parents, I'm sorry, mom and dad, you feel that way, but I'm, I have to obey God, not you here. Or maybe you've got your kids, you're homeschooling and your parents don't think you should be homeschooling. They think you should have them in a public school. I'm sorry, mom and dad, this is what we feel God wants us to do. You can do that in a respectful way. Or maybe they don't think you should be going to this church. Or maybe they're upset with you for your spiritual views about things. Or maybe they make fun of you because you read the Bible. 
You have to respectfully say, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry, but I have to obey God in this matter, not you. Honoring your parents means caring for them in their old age. Now, maybe they won't let you care for them in their old age. I, we, my mother was in Corvallis when she died, Oregon, and we tried. She was sickly, and we invited her to come and live with us. She said, no, I don't want to. I'm, so we did our duty. You know, we opened our home to her. We, we live in Spokane, so we lived a long ways away. But uh, so what I'm saying is sometimes, especially today, parents many times are well off financially so they can live independently. And so, but what do you, as they get older, they're going to need you socially, if nothing else. They may not need you financially, but they need your love, your care, your respect. They may not have anybody else. Their siblings die. Their parents are dead. Their friends are dying. And all that's left are, are their children and their grandchildren. We're not too far away from this, probably. And so, so it's, it's crucial to you that you do what you can to honor them. Your children will carefully watch how you honor your parents. And your example will prove decisive. I was talking to a woman the other day, who was about 40. And she was telling me how she was caring for her elderly father, who she had big problems with, but she'd given herself to care for him and love him. The dad had divorced her mother when... She was in her high school years, and she was pretty much estranged from her dad. He was mean to her. But when he was in the hospital in California, she flew from Spokane to California, and she took care of him the last two weeks of his life. And I said to her, that's really impressive. You know what's going to happen? Your kids are watching you, and your kids are going to do this for you when you get old because they watched you do this to your parents. It was a wonderful biblical example of what it means to go out and love a parent and respect that parent. Second application, teach your children to honor you. Do whatever you have to do to train your children to honor you, to obey you, and to respect your authority. Why? Because you have, you are God's representative to your children. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Your authority is from God. Your authority over your children's life has been sovereignly instituted by him. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God has appointed you his delegated authority in your children's life. When your children sass you, lip off to you, they're lipping off to God. You're not God, but they're lipping off to God's authority which God has put in your life. And it's crucial that you see that principle and recognize that that's how God sees it. He sees them not just lifting off to you, but lifting off to him because he's put you in their life to be his delegated authority in their life. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline means training. Children must be controlled. When it comes to discipline, we only have two options with young children. I'm talking about primarily preschool-age children. Loving, tender, corporal punishment or browbeating, yelling, verbal abuse, threatening, name-calling, rejection, timeouts, etc. Which is better? You have to make up your own mind. But I think loving, compassionate, corporal punishment is a much easier on your kids, much better for them. 
gonna, it's gonna, kids that are raised this way when they're in their teens are happy, they're contented, they're, uh, they're moving into adulthood, usually ahead of their peers, and God's, cause God's blessing is on them. And this is why the Bible's big on corporal punishment, because the alternatives are not, not effective. Honor your children. How your children honor you, as I mentioned, is how they're honoring God. And you've got to see it that way. So first application was honor your parents. Second application is teach your children to honor you. Take this seriously. Third application, parenting is a stewardship. God has has given you a stewardship to exercise his authority in your children's life. God loves your children and warns you, you to love your children the same way he loves them. And he will hold you accountable. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Now, this text is never used about for parenting. It should always be used for parenting. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the sea. Parents, you're going to cause your kids to stumble because you're a sinner. But you want to minimize that. You want to take that very seriously. How seriously does God take this? Is he here? Did you just hear what I read? It'd be better for you to have a great millstone around your neck and throw it into the sea? That's serious, isn't it? So what are the, some of the ways that you might cause them to sin? Well, fail to discipline them. Fail to teach them scripture. Set an ungodly example for them. And you're going to do that. And you're going to need grace. We'll come to that in just a moment. But you want to minimize it. Fail to obey Ephesians 5 in your marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved this church. Do we take that seriously? Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Could anything be more politically incorrect than that? Are you willing to stand against the winds of our culture in this area, which are blowing really hard in the other direction? You'll be like a salmon swimming upstream. But you can cause your children to stumble by just giving lip service to that text in Ephesians 5, ignoring it. You come to church, Pastor Matthew preaches on that text. You go home, your kids heard the sermon. But they notice that mom and dad don't... They said, they're not making any effort to obey this. Your children will never say anything to you about this, but they observe this. And what does that do to them? It says hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Mom and dad don't take the Bible seriously. Mom and dad really don't take church seriously. Mom and dad don't take God seriously at all. Why should we take God seriously? The motive, fourthly, fourth application is always love. Love, love, love. God loves us. We're going to come to this more in just a moment. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father his son. So why do we discipline? Because we're in contact with God the Father. We want to be like him and he loves his children. He disciplines his children because he loves them. And so we say, God, I'm going to discipline my kids too because I love them. The motive is love. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. There's a hate crime. A hate crime that matters. 
But he who loves his son is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. We don't discipline our children. Putting him to death in the context of the Old Testament means all kinds of negative things. Now, we've give, I've given you some pretty serious stuff this morning. We need to back up and, and throw ourselves on the mercy of the gospel here. We are sinners. We are fallen. You and I, all of us. None of us do this perfectly. But there's a huge difference between somebody that's trying real hard to do this and doing it imperfectly and somebody who is just, I don't care about this. I'm not taking this seriously. I don't think God means this. I don't think this is important. Okay? And they're failing too. The first kind of person has God's rich blessing on them. And Jesus came. We noticed that all these sins against parents are capital crimes. That's why Jesus came and died and took capital punishment in our place. You see, these, the, the, there's no capital crime for striking or cursing a parent or reviling a parent today because Jesus came, went to the cross, and took capital punishment for all of us who have disrespected our parents. So when we put our faith in the gospel, it's finished. It's over. The, the penalty has been paid. I want you to see the, the seriousness of disobedience. And I also want you to see the amazing grace and love of God, which is off the charts here. So your children aren't going to die because they mouth off, lip off to you because Jesus died in their place. He took the penalty. And you're not going to die for the times when you mouthed off to your parents, disrespected them, did not honor them because Jesus came and took the death penalty. The death penalty shows us how serious the sin is the death penalty tells us, shows us the infinite nature of God's love for us. Let's go to the second commandment real quickly. Now, the second commandment is even much more countercultural than this commandment. Open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. So I want you to read with me as we go through this text. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands or to a thousand generations in some translations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now in the Old Testament, the word idol generally refers to physical representations of God. In fact, the, word for, the Hebrew word for idol comes from the root word to hew or to cut um, because that, it was the word, the verb involved in making an idol where you take out a, a hatchet and you take a stump and you carve it into some image. The first commandment prohibited the worship of false gods, but the second commandment prohibits the worshiping the true God falsely. And notice the consequences down through the generations. The worshiping of the true God falsely. This commandment is crucial to parenting because it ends, for I, the Lord your God, 
am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the point. God visits the iniquity of the parent upon the children of the parent who hate him. Now, this is really countercultural because in the modern world, we are very individualistic. We think of ourselves as little islands. If I sin, it doesn't affect anybody around me. If I do good, it doesn't affect anybody around me. But that's not a biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is the right worldview. In, the, in fact, North American culture is the most individualist, individualistic culture that's ever existed. In fact, almost all cultures on earth today outside of Western culture are not this way. And it's the same throughout history. In the Bible, God sees us as all joined to one another, connected to each other. Jonathan Edwards likened it to a tree. All of humanity is a big tree, and every leaf on the tree is connected to the branch, which is connected to the stump, which is connected to the roots. And if the tree gets water, the whole tree is blessed. If the tree goes through a drought, the whole tree, even the leaves, are all affected by the drought. That's how God sees us. Think about Adam. Adam sinned, and we're still suffering for it today, even though we didn't do his sin. Jesus came and lived a perfectly righteous life, and we are blessed for his virtues when we're connected to him by faith, faith in the gospel. So the Bible does not even remotely see us as disconnected. The Bible sees the family as a long lineage of people all connected to each other. So I've been affected by my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my father and my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and my great-grandchildren will be affected by me. That's what we see here in the second commandment. I did a wedding for a couple about 10 days ago, a really neat young couple in our church. And at the, at the uh, rehearsal dinner, I prayed for them, and I prayed for them and for their children and for their great-grandchildren, for their great-grandchildren that will be affected by their union. And they looked at me like I was crazy. But that's how I think. Now, I, I can't tell you this. This idea is repeated probably 200 times in the Bible or more. I have a good friend who has a theological master's from Western Seminary, good seminary. And I brought this subject up with him, and he said, I'm, you're crazy. I said, have you read your Bible? We have to deal with these texts. It was just all a new idea to him because he was a young man in his 30s. And he just read his Bible, but he was... And I don't blame him because it's countercultural for us. Uh, this... The second commandment is the only hate crime that matters. Jesus, God says, if you worship me falsely, you hate me. That's what he says. I'll, bless the, I'll curse to the third and fourth generation those who hate me. But I'll bless to a thousand generations or I'll bless thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Physical images of God minimize God. They make God manageable. We reduce the infinite to something finite. God becomes someone we can relate to in a way that we feel is safe. Someone entirely imminent and not transcendent to us. That's the problem with taking an infinite spirit and representing him by something physical. Physical images make God small, finite, and manageable. Physical images make God like us. And that's why 
We do that. Aaron throws the gold into the fire, and out comes a golden calf, which is to represent Yahweh, remember, in, the old, in Exodus 32. And in Leviticus 10, he has four sons. His first two sons are struck dead. If you remember then, there's a connection between those, those two events. They did what their dad did. Their dad disrespected God. The boys offer strange fire. Fire comes out from the holy place and strikes them dead on the spot. God in his mercy gives Aaron two surviving sons to whom the priesthood can continue on. The second commandment warns that we do not, we do this, that we shrink God because we hate the way he really is. We love the truth that he's infinitely good, gracious, and loving. Nobody's going to get upset with you out there on the street if you say God is love. Yeah, of course he is. But we hate the truth that he's also sovereign, infinite, holy, just, untamable, uncomfortable, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And all those things are true of God. We hate the truth that we must stand before him someday in judgment. And he's infinitely holy. By contrast, the person who worships God in spirit and truth, without physical representation does so because they know that God is spirit and he must be spirit in order to be infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinitely holy, infinitely loving, infinitely good, infinitely just, infinitely patient. Oh, aren't you glad he's infinitely patient? All those are infinitely true of God. By contrast, excuse me, the real truth about God is that he's wonderful off the charts. Now, we're not in the habit of making physical idols of God today, are we? But we do the same thing. When in our mind, we say, my God is, fill in the blank. My God would never do, fill in the blank. We have a preconceived idea of what God is like, and when we run into the biblical evidence and we don't like it, we jettison it, and we stay with our preconceived idea. God says, that's hating me. We're making a mental idol of God. And I would suggest to you as parents that if you want God to visit your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, people you'll never even know or meet, but will be blessed by your influence, you need to worship God as he really is and discipline yourself to accept what you like about God and what you don't like about God, to embrace it all. Father, give me grace and faith. God, I don't understand this text about you. But I'm not going to reject it, Lord. Maybe you've read Judges recently. You notice God commanding the Jews to destroy every man, woman, and child in Jericho. That's even the babies. And the mothers, the babies nursing at their mother's breast. And you don't like that. I don't blame you for not liking that. But you can't discard it. You have to say, God, I don't get this. But it's in the Bible. Lord, help me understand how this was a reflection of your perfections in some way that I don't understand. And as if you pray that and you seek for help, go to your pastor, Matthew, he can help you. You'll get a much more robust view of God. And in the end, you'll be much happier with God than you were if you say, no, my God is love. He'd never do that. That must be some Old Testament thing. That's what the second commandment's talking about here. It's saying, oh, I, wanna, I want richly to bless you to a thousand generations. Here are the requirements. Love me as I am. Not as you want me to be. Now, several questions come up right away with this subject. First, is idolatry limited to manufacture of physical idols? And I just said no. Second, does God unjustly punish innocent children? 
What does God mean when he says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children? Does he mean the innocent children will be liable for their parents' sins? Does he mean that he's going to punish the children for their father's sins when the kids are innocent? And I answer no to that. Children are not responsible for their parents' sins. Neither are they punished for their parents' sins. Think about Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sins. Same thing in Ezekiel 18. Same thing in Jeremiah 31. So in what, in what way does God visit the iniquity of the fathers under their children, under the third and fourth generation? In this way, the children imitate their parents and God doesn't stop it. And so they do the same sins their parents do and they get judged for the same sins their parents did. Now, you remember, they learn to hate God from their parents and God does not intervene and change it. They pick up their parents' God. The God their parents really worship, not the God their parents pretend to worship. Remember, no one can come to the Father unless Jesus draws him. This text means that Jesus might not draw children of idolatrous parents. In fact, he has no obligation to. He might let that child wallow in his own sins and then punish the child for those sins and be completely just to do so. Does God make exceptions? Yes, I'm an exception. Probably most of you are exceptions. Grace is unmerited favor. This means that God, despite the parents' idolatry, reaches down and shows mercy to millions of children of idolaters. That is why many of us are here this morning. God has shown amazing mercy and grace to children that didn't deserve it. My dad was an idolater. My dad had a statue of Mary in the backyard that he worshiped. It was on a little pedestal. I was raised Roman Catholic. I always read this text and I go, oh God, I can't believe your mercy to me. Why me, Lord? Why did you choose me? Why did you reveal yourself to me? I deserve the second commandment treatment. But it's because God is merciful and God is gracious. But here's the deal. My dad was not a believer. You're believers. You know the Bible. You're evangelicals. You profess to believe the Bible. I believe the judgment will be more severe to us if we don't pick up on this. To he that is given much, much will be expected, Jesus kept continually saying. So I think we have a higher level of responsibility and a higher degree of accounting as born-again Christians to pick up on this, to obey it, and to walk with it. Despite the fact that God is gracious and merciful, overflowing with steadfast love, slow to anger, which he is, the general principle of the second commandment remains. It would be most foolish for Christian parents who understand the second commandment to presume upon God's mercy and grace. Well, I don't need to worry about this. God is, God is merciful. Big mistake. Really big mistake. Take this seriously. Say, God, help me. Are you perfect here? No. Do you have false ideas of God? Sure you do. And I do too. But there's a big difference again between somebody who's doing that unknowingly and somebody who comes to the Bible on an area, let's say election or predestination or I mentioned the subject of Jericho. Just read descriptions in the Bible of the final judgment and they'll curl your toes. Okay. Psalm 50, rivers of fire. 
2 Thessalonians, rivers of fire coming out from God, Christ as he comes in final judgment. I mean, imagine a gigantic blowtorch. So we're not just talking about a blowtorch, we're talking about a blowtorch 10,000 miles across. They're very unpleasant descriptions. What are you going to do with those when you read those? It doesn't take much, it doesn't take much imagination to imagine what it's going to be like on the day of final, on, when Christ comes again. And so what are you going to do with that? Well, God is love. Yes, he is love. But it's bigger than that. In fact, you will never enjoy the love of God or really come to grips with the love of God unless you're willing to come to grips with all these unpleasant realities as well. And when you do, then the love of God just gets ratcheted up a uh, hundredfold. As you realize how unworthy you are to be loved, and you realize that God has loved you at an infinite expense to his son when he had no obligation to do that. No need to do it. God has no needs. He doesn't need us in any way, shape, or form. How could anything be more loving than this? A God who has no needs, who sends his son to bear the weight of infinite offenses against himself on the cross. No need for us. No obligation to save us. God would be infinitely loving if he'd never saved any of us. And yet here he is doing this amazing thing. I just close with a case study. Tons of these in the Old Testament. Think of King David. David breaks two commandments that are punishable by capital crime, adultery and murder, both, both punishable by death by stoning. The prophet Nathan comes to him and, and confronts him. David says, I'm the man. He's a humble man. I did it. And Nathan says from the Lord, the prophet says, you will not die. David must have heaved a huge sigh of relief knowing what he deserved. You're not going to die, but the sword will never depart from your family. David was forgiven, but there was a tremendous cost to he and his descendants for his sin. The baby conceived by Bathsheba dies. Absalom, his son, rises up in rebellion against him. He imitates his father's despising of God, which is what the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, David, you despised me. In other words, David... You presumed upon my grace. You thought you could sin like this and nothing would happen. And you despised the word of the Lord where I promised that in my justice, the death penalty would come for these actions. Yet you thought you were above it. And by doing that, you despised the word of the Lord. And so Absalom imitates his father and despises. He doesn't honor his father. He tries to usurp the throne from his father and Absalom dies. The son conceived by Bathsheba died. I mentioned that. Adonijah dies. And finally, in God's mercy and grace, the sword devours David's ultimate son, Jesus Christ, who would pay the death penalty for David. I mean, Nathan can say to David, you will not die, David, because God has said a substitute's going to die in your place and take the wrath that you deserve. The sword will never depart from your family, David, in judgment until the judgment finally falls on the son of David who will hang on a cross and bear the sins, the judgment for the sins that you deserve. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That can be going on and you can be forgiven by God and go to heaven is what I'm saying. God forgives, but the consequences of our sin often go on and on and on. Well, brothers and sisters, we serve a great God this morning who 
is merciful and gracious. You can't be perfect in your parentings. Don't even try to be perfect. But redouble your resolve to follow God, to take him seriously, to take parenting seriously, to love your children as God loves them, to be affectionate with your children as God feels affection for them, but to discipline them as God wants them disciplined, to take submission to authority seriously. How can we do that? We look at the cross of Christ. We see Jesus hanging there, receiving the judgment that we deserve. We see Jesus hanging there, showing us how greatly we are loved. In Tim Keller's words, we are much worse sinners than we imagine, and we are much more loved than any of us could imagine as well. The cross shows us that. The cross doubles our resolve to follow God and also doubles our confidence in God's mercy, God's grace, and God's love. You're going to need the gospel. You're going to need that mercy, grace, and love as you parent because you're going to fail just like I have. And then you can throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God knowing that the price has been paid. Let's close our heads and bow our heads in prayer and ask God for grace. Father, this morning we come to you and we confess our failings to you. I confess my failings and my brothers and sisters confess their failings. Oh God, we thank you for authority. Help us honor your authority with our children. Help us honor your authority in the way we relate to our parents. And Father, uh, we pray for power from your Holy Spirit to obey you, to take these things seriously, to see these issues as you see them. Father, please open our eyes. Please help us. We come to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.